Let me tell you a little story. When I was in elementary school, eight or nine or ten years old, I was a safety. I don't know if they have those anymore. You would wear a white fluorescent belt over your shoulder, across your waist, so hopefully a car wouldn't hit you. I'd get up at 5.30 in the morning, it was completely dark outside, and I'd walk to one of the busiest quarter, corners in our neighborhood. And uh, I was assigned, as were other safeties, to help our fellow students cross the street, tell them when to stop, just to make sure they were safe. And um, so what began to happen, there was a group of four or five kids who would every day, every morning, harass me, make fun of me. I wasn't sure what to do. So I asked my father. My father was a very smart man. He was in many ways self-educated. Uh, he'd gone to college, but he, he read a lot. He had served in World War II. He was a very strong man and street savvy. And he said, pick out the leader of the pack and hit him as hard as you possibly can. Now, I'm not advising that for kids today because you probably wind up in federal prison. But I said, hit him as hard as I can. I'm a little nervous about that. I said, where should I hit him? He said, in the stomach. As hard as I can? He said, yes. And so a few days later, it happened again. And I thought about what my dad said. And I hit him as hard as I could in the stomach. And he went down to the ground crying like a baby. And the others, well, they kind of walked around me and they never bothered me again. I know we live in different times. I know what kids are told to do and what not to do. I know what would happen to me today in this environment. Why am I telling you all this? Because that has stuck with me now to the point where I'm 64 years old. Why? Well, in a strange way, when I look at Ukraine, this is how I see the Russians and how they're treating the Ukrainians. And then you see the pictures, the satellite pictures. Then you see the video. Then you see the photographs. What do you see? You see mass graves, faces covered up, first-hand stories of people being raped, earrings being pulled off their ears, then being hanged, people being decapitated, limbs being cut off, throats being slit, 15-year-old daughter and her mother raped simultaneously, people trying to flee shot in the back, people with their hands tied and their, their legs tied shot in the back of the head, a guy on a bicycle trying to get out shot where he stood. You see piles and piles of dogs that are just slaughtered. And people who kill dogs, of course, will kill anything. You see all this. And these are the Russian troops. We're learning now it's the Wagner group, which is like the SS. Chechnyan hit squads. They're all being unleashed on the citizens of Ukraine who've done nothing to provoke any of this. Not a damn thing. I am ashamed, ashamed at the response of our government. 
in 50 years from now, maybe 20 years from now, 100 years from now, people are going to look back and they're going to say, why didn't we do more? Why didn't we do more? And I'm asking you this question today. I am sick and tired of the Putin wing of the media, the Putin wing of the Republican Party, the Putin wing of the Democrat Party. I'm sick of all of them. They have been lying for weeks, if not months. I'm tired of the isolationists and those that say, what do you want to do, drag us into a war? Did they not see the pictures? There is a war going on. World War III has begun. The question is whether it can be contained where it's taking place right now, whether it'll spread to Eastern Europe, to NATO countries, whether it'll spread to the Pacific and Taiwan, whether it'll spread in the Middle East with Iran, given that this government, this regime is, is in the process of arming the Iranians with ICBMs tipped with nuclear weapons. These are grave times. Now is not the time to hide. Now is not the time to be quiet. Now is not the time to pretend that your ideology would keep us safe when it won't. We should be muscling up the United States military just in case. We should be muscling up NATO just in case. We should be arming the Taiwanese on the island of Formosa before they're attacked by the communist Chinese. Harpoon missiles and other weapons, heavy weapons, so they can defend themselves in their freedom. We should immediately stop negotiating with the, the terrorist regime in Tehran, ensuring that they're going to have nuclear missiles that can hit our cities, as well as hit anywhere in the Middle East and in Europe. Can you imagine when that happens, the state of affairs in the world? Of course, this all involves American national security. We can't pretend it doesn't. What do you think, they're going to leave us alone? That this isn't going to affect us economically? That this isn't going to affect us geopolitically and in every other way? Of course it is. Of course it is. When bullies see weakness, they attack. These genocidal mass murders in China, in Russia, in the Middle East, they see weakness in Putin. In response to these horrific, horrific photos and the evidence is overwhelming of genocide, Joe Biden can't even call it genocide. They're splitting legal hairs. Why? Because if you call it genocide, you have to do more than provide stingers and javelins. Maybe it's time, finally, to give them the MiG-29s that they've been asking for and the tanks that they have been asking for so they have a fighting chance to actually defeat the Russians. Are they allowed to defeat the Russians? It doesn't appear that our government thinks so. These people want to fight. They're fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their freedom. It's a new democracy. It's imperfect, but it's new. And yet, look what's happening to them. Putin doesn't intend to stop with Ukraine. He's having a tough time, no question about it. But that's due to his incompetence, the incompetence of his military, and the strength of the Ukrainian people. Quite frankly, the brilliance of their military leaders and their Churchillian president, Zelensky, whom the Putin wing and the various political parties and the media have been trying to trash to their great disgrace. What do you think Churchill would say about Zelensky? He'd say, that's my kind of guy. What do you think Ronald Reagan would say about Zelensky? That's my kind of guy. What do you think 
Margaret Thatcher would say, or John Paul II would say, or any of the recent great successful leaders of the world would say, they'd stand with him. Think they'd stand with Putin? No, nobody should stand with Putin. And I hear it said by the pacifists in our country, the pacifists who just, who just say, do you want to send your children? Uh, do you want to create World War III? Two of the stupidest questions you'll ever be asked. No, we don't want to send our children and we don't want to create World War III. But we're realists. We see what's taking place. You have to be prudential. Just because you want to avoid a conflict doesn't mean the other side wants to avoid a conflict. So how do we lessen the chance of a conflict? We arm up the Ukrainians with what, what they need. And we support efforts to take out Putin. Over 60% of the American people believe that to be the case, that he ought to be taken out, not by us, but by others. Maybe, maybe a Wagner group, if you will. But on the Ukrainian side, I mean, after all, Putin's been trying to assassinate Zelensky now for years. Well, what's good for the goose is good for the fascist. So my comment to you is this. Please speak out. You don't want to look back in history and say, what did I say? What did I say when this was going on? We haven't even seen what they've done to the people of Maripol. That's a city of 400,000 people where hundreds of thousands are stuck there. They've been surrounded. God only knows what's taking place there. And these other major cities in Ukraine that have not yet been liberated and what's taking place in these cities. It's one thing to say that we want a war crimes tribunal. That occurs after the fact. In the meantime, people are being raped, tortured, dismembered, disemboweled, slaughtered, hanged, and God knows what else. And we're alive to watch it. I want to thank the organizations, most of them religious organizations and veterans organizations, that are doing everything humanly possible to help these people everything humanly possible to help the refugees, to get food and water to these people and putting their lives on the line. I cannot thank you enough. But what I'm hearing from some of these groups is that our government, the United States government, has very few people in Ukraine to assist in these efforts. Very few people. I don't want to hear any more that Joe Biden is some great leader. He's not leading anything. I don't want to hear any more that we're doing everything we can to help the Ukrainian people. We're not. This is our generation's genocide that's taking place. You look back at Rwanda. You look back at Cambodia. You look back at the Holocaust. You look back at the slaughter of the Ukrainians in 1932 and 1933. Our media were either silent or on the wrong side. I'm just proud to say that the vast majority of the American people know this to be a righteous confrontation with an evil man and an evil enemy. And they want us to do more. And we should do more. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News YouTube page and catch our hottest interviews and most compelling analysis. You will not get it anywhere else.
I want to begin with a quote from Winston Churchill. The farther you look behind, the farther you can see ahead. In order to see ahead the next five years, the 10 years, 50 years, you have to look behind that much. Why? Because it is a single road. It goes here. It doesn't start suddenly. It draws on everything that went before it and becomes something new. So to begin this discussion, I want to begin with technology, because there is a belief here that technology is the key to geopolitical power. Well, perhaps it is. But let's first discuss technology. So for example, this is an iPhone. You, have, you must have many of them. It's obviously a useful tool, and you have no idea of its history. I will now tell you its history. The cell phone was developed by the United States Army in the 1970s. It was first deployed by the US Army. So your cell phone is a military tool. The microchip was commissioned by the US Air Force to fly the F-14 and also cruise missiles. GPS, you used that to find your way around. So did the US Navy, which commissioned the building of the GPS squadron so its submarines could know where they are. There's, of course, the camera. We all love the camera. I don't, but my wife does. It was developed for a space satellite so that the film did not have to be dropped to Earth. It took pictures that could be transmitted as data to Earth. And of course, there's the internet, without which this wouldn't have any place, which is developed by DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, to move information from one point to another quickly so we didn't have to mail it. In other words, to understand the technology of this age, you must understand the geopolitical requirements of the United States, the military that it created, and the technology that it really cre created as well. So you cannot look at the cell phone, the iPhone, the very cute little thing, the camera and everything else, without understanding its military origins. Now, what does this have to do with history? Well, the question is, how does Dubai or any country develop a military capability in the age of uh, all these new technologies that are inviting? The answer is, look to your defense department. Look to your defense ministries. Why? Because the United States did something to create this technology. Not because it wanted to have a cell phone for you to use, but because it was trying to solve military problems. And those military problems had application to Apple. And Steve Jobs stole all these ideas. But in America, it's not stealing, because the US government is not permitted to hold on to technology. It cannot patent technology unless it's classified, and this wasn't. 
So he simply went and got together all this technology that was already there and used it. So the first element of new technology, artificial intelligence, or whatever you want to have, the first foundation of it has to be a need by some organization with enough money to invent the solution. And then the state must be generous at letting the private sector have it. If the United States refused to give it out, which, by the way, the Soviets also developed but wouldn't give out, we wouldn't have the technology now today. So there's an intimate connection, not between what technology is going to do for geopolitics, but what geopolitics does for technology. And if you look at the iPhone and think about it, and you think about the mines you have here in Dubai, and the resources and the money that you have here in Dubai, you understand the first thing that you must do is define your geopolitical needs, define the solutions that your technology allows you to have, and then make sure the private sector uses it very aggressively to create new industries. Every country can do it. The United States did. The Russians did, but they forgot to give it to private industry. And Dubai is a little country, but I will begin my analysis of geopolitics with something important. In the 1940s and 50s, great powers had to be huge. They had to be huge because the technology of bombers of bombs, of warfare, had enormous requirements in people. We are now at a point where the number of people that are engaged in geopolitical action, warfare, is much less. Stopping that capability also does not require an America-sized population or China-sized population. It requires a skilled population a population that is free to invent things, to experiment, to try things. And that is what I would like to urge on, it's not my place to urge anything, but what I think is necessary for Dubai is to understand that you do not have to be a massive power in population to be a great one. Look at Israel. Its population is hardly worth mentioning. It is a decisive force in the region. You're a lie. And one that is becoming globally significant because of technologies it has. So the first part of what I want to talk about the next 50 years is the last 50. All of these things came to pass. You're using them now. You don't know where they came from. They came from the Ministry of Defense. And your Ministry of Defense is quite capable of inventing things too. Certainly the Israelis were. So having said that, let's talk a little about major geopolitical shifts. Because people always build, I just said in a panel before, people always believe that this is the worst of times and they invent some past that was peaceful and loving and kind. There was no such time. We are not nice people, we humans. And we don't live in peace. And we must be prepared for war. 
And in the Ukraine, all of the West was stunned to find out that history hadn't changed. I don't know why. So let's talk about what we mean here, okay? At the end of World War II, an entirely new geopolitical system was created. Japan collapsed. Germany was occupied. Russia was in the center of Europe. The United States was without any doubt the leading power in the world. And that existed for a very long time. And we were close to war, and sometimes the Americans went to war foolishly in Vietnam and other places. But the world held together. But nothing in geopolitics is permanent. Everything changes direction. So what direction has changed here? In 1991, an extraordinary year, the Soviet Union collapsed. The Maastricht Treaty was signed, and for the first time, Europe became a unified entity. Operation Desert Storm was carried out here in the neighborhood, setting, releasing the forces of Islamic fundamentalism that ultimately attacked on 9-11 the United States and has wreaked havoc in the region. Japan had a massive economic crisis. It was as stunning as any other. Japan went from being this enormously successful country, almost overnight, to being a failure. And China began its rise to power in 1990-91. All of this happened in one year because all of them were linked together. The weakness of the Soviet Union finally gave rise to a Europe that was united because they were not concerned about the Soviet Union, which gave rise to unrest in the Middle East, now that the United States is of a different sort, Japan's crisis, and so on. So between 1945 and 1991, the world changed completely. All right? This happens all the time, but when it happens in your lifetime, as happened in mine, I was shocked. Shocked, I say. We are now living in 2050 in a very similar time. First, we have discovered that Russia is not a great power. Its economy ranks behind South Korea's. It is a weak economy. Its military has shown itself to be incapable of adequate planning or the execution of a war, even if it's at a country as weak as Ukraine. So our vision of what Russia was already damaged in 1991, uh, that vision is now double down. And whatever the Russians say, we know they couldn't take Kiev. We know that they couldn't take Ukraine. We know that they couldn't survive the sanctions without stumbling. And a third element emerged, which I was surprised by. The reemergence of American power. Power not military, but economic. The power of the dollar, when it was denied to the Russians, when that denial was joined by the Europeans, 
when it was joined by Japan, by a worldwide coalition, crushed, I would say, Russia's capability to make war. Those wars are expensive. In addition to that, the United States discovered that it was a leader of a leader of coalitions, of NATO, of course, of, NATO, of China as well, of Australia, so on and so forth, that when the war came there, the United States discovered it could lead something it had forgotten and had also discovered that it could wage war without shooting, which was a very important thing to do. So the United States stood back, did not engage, supported the Ukrainians, and made it impossible for the Russians to convert rubles to dollars at the Federal Reserve Bank. And that was the discovery of a new sort of power, which was always there, but we didn't know. So where we are now is a very important place. We've entered a new era. But we can see that we've entered only that era only by looking backwards. In looking backwards, we see this is different from 1945. Looking backwards, we can see this is different from 1991. And therefore, by looking backwards, we can see what's new. If you can't look backwards, you can't imagine what's new. And what are the things that the Americans have, are learning in this? Well, the most important question that the Americans are learning in this is the centrality of space. If we want to know what the Russians are doing, they can't hide it. From space, we can see them. We always knew this, but this is a war in which we could operationalize it. And if the Russians could, they would destroy our satellites, which they always claimed to be able to do, but they couldn't. And so where does war go now? Well, war went with the iPhone into tactical operations on the face of the earth. Now we are in a different time where the real issue is not what happens on the face of the earth, but happens in space. From space, we can see the ground. And on the ground, we can see soldiers. And the soldiers we have seen, we can order to be killed by weapons in space, or weapons on the ground, or what have you. So the geopolitical shift that we see coming out of this, one that will last forever, is that we have now entered space warfare. We have been there really for a long time being able to spot Soviet satellites or Chinese satellites, they're being able to spot ours. But now space is bound up with warfare on the ground. And therefore, the enemy we have, whoever it is, must destroy our capabilities in space. To command the Earth, you must command space. To command the sea, you must command space. We talk about artificial intelligence, and I'm not sure what that is. I assume that's very good. But from a geopolitical point of view, we think well enough. We don't need help. What we need is space-based systems. 
And the important thing about space-based systems, and I once met your Minister of Space, a very pleasant meeting, and you went to Mars, perhaps not on your own technology, but you went. A small nation can become a force in space because it doesn't require 100,000 men in uniform, but maybe 200 to take the technologies that already exist and create something from it. So when we talk about technology and war in general, it comes from war. We can go back to steamships. We can go back to many things. But war creates technology because when you go to war, one, you spend money, and two, it's life and death. And so you get results. We're in a new period. We have seen the decline of Russia, and we are seeing the decline of China. Yes, you will laugh at that idea, but you would have laughed when I said Russia was finished. China is now in its economic end, its final crisis. When the United States began to be an economic power in, 1890, in 20, 1890, it began by selling low-cost, cheap products to the world. By the year 2000, the United States sold one-half of all manufactured products in the world. By 1930, it collapsed economically, 40 years later, the Great Depression. It, was, uh, it recovered. Japan, in 1950, began its role as a cheap producer. It became an enormous economic power, and by 1990, 40 years later, it collapsed. The Chinese economic boom, the Chinese economic boom really ran for 40 years. And now we see the Chinese economy staggering, unable to pay its debts. It's 35% of its economy is uh, real estate, and the largest real estate companies are defaulting on their debts. We will all think this doesn't mean anything. When the United States went into its crisis, we thought, ah, it doesn't mean anything. They'll be better in a week. When Japan went into its crisis, we all thought, well, they'll be better in a week. But they won't be. They will not collapse. They're a great power. They will come out of it, but not in less than 10 years, as the other said. And therefore, what we have to look at there is that China is weakened and weakening whatever it says. Russia is weakening and weakening, and the United States is emerging, but that cannot be the only power. So I will name three powers to you that I expect to rise, and some of them you will laugh at, because I'm always laughed at, that's fine. One is Japan, the world's third largest economy, a significant military, and the United Population. Number two, Poland. We are already seeing Poland emerge in Europe in this war as the decisive power, as the leader. And Turkey, which was in a terrible economic crisis and is emerging, but is a pivot. I can't explain why I picked these countries, but I picked them 10 years ago. And I said they would emerge in 40, year, in 40 years. 
And 10 years ago, I said, Russia would not be able to hold together after 2020, and China would be an economic crisis. People laughed at me. I like people laughing at me. I like to win. So anyway, look at this next 50 years. It will not look like the last 50 years. It will not have the same technology. It will not have the same culture. It will not have the same players. Do not expect that the next 50 years will be like this, only more so. You've seen the way the world changes. And I have confidence that this country, this to be very strange and interesting country, has the capability of making its own way in that world. And I thank you. Here to break it all down for us is General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, Fox News senior strategic analyst and chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. General, it's a pleasure to see you. Thank you for being here. Uh, first of all, you've been talking for a long time now about fighting to win, not just to, to pull a draw, but to win this battle and helping the Ukrainians do it. Uh, it sounds like some people in the administration have gotten the message. I want to play a little bit from Admiral John Kirby's presser last Friday uh, to a question put to him by Lucas Tomlinson from Fox News about whether we are encouraging a win by the Ukrainians. Let's play the sound by and get your reaction. Roll tape. We want the Ukrainians to win this war. Um, and we want to see Ukraine not have to fight for its own sovereignty. We want to see uh, uh, Mr. Putin and the Russian army uh, lose this invasion, lose this fight inside Ukraine. It's nice to hear Admiral Kirby spell it out that clearly, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's great. And, uh, you know, it's really the first time we've heard that from the administration. Uh, I I'm absolutely convinced. I mean, that's where the Pentagon leaders actually feel. Uh, but Secretary Blinken avoids the subject. The National Security Advisor does the same. And certainly the President of the United States does the same. I was... I was very encouraged by the Prime Minister of the UK going to oh, Kiev this yeah. weekend, uh, Boris Johnson, and standing there with uh, President Zelensky, obviously, uh, and, and walking around the, the city itself, but nonetheless telling him that he's there to help him win and, and achieve that victory and drive the Russians out. I mean, and that is the key point here. I mean, what I believe is going on with this administration and they parse words very carefully, David, and I know you, you pay a lot of attention to it. They, they talk about Russia has had strategic failure. And what, what they're interpreting that to mean uh, is that Russia, because they've had this strategic failure, then we're on a path to make a deal, to have an agreement with them. And that is not what Zelensky wants. That's right. Because he knows full well if that takes place, Russia right now has more territory that they're owning and occupying than what they did prior to February 24th. And obviously, they've committed enormous atrocities on his people. And he wants to stop those atrocities by driving them out. He's not looking for a deal at this time. He's looking to remove the Russians from his territory. And that's the distinction that is not being made. I'm convinced the administration is looking for an end to this and a peace agreement. The problem with that is that leaves the Russians 
inside Ukraine. Yeah. And that is what, what Zelensky is prepared to accept, certainly at this time. Well, the other thing that you, you've mentioned before is that they use just the talking, just sitting down and talking. They will, they will say anything and, and, and agree to, to have talks and everything. But while they're talking, they're using that as an opportunity to rebuild their forces, no? Yes. And, and the second thing they do, we've seen this time and time again in Syria. Every ceasefire in Syria was violated. And we've seen it with the ceasefires uh, in the Donbass region over the past eight years as well. And what they do is they rebuild forces, but they also tactically reposition forces to gain advantage. Yeah. So if the Russians go to ceasefire, the Russian will break the ceasefire and take advantage of it. That is the historical pattern. Now, you, you mentioned Syria, the, the Russian general who was involved in so many massacres in Syria that, that you have been documented here and by you and others. Uh, Alexander Vernikov, we're showing a picture of him now. He's he's now apparently got the portfolio, got the Ukraine portfolio from from Putin. Uh, this could not be good. I mean, for all the horrors we've seen, this guy is the master of those horrors by the Russian army, isn't he? Well, we're overplaying this hand here with this guy. I mean, he was in Syria for one year, and yes, yes, he was a butcher there for sure, but all Russian generals are, uh, and he's no different than the other ones as far as I'm concerned. But what's notable about him, he has been in, in the southern district, uh, where Crimea and the Donbass, he's been there since 2016, six years. So he's he's been involved in the Donbass region with Russian separatists and Russian military. And when war was declared on February the 24th, he's been in charge of the whole southern area. So Mariupol and what he's that destruction has taken place in that city is underneath his command. Wow. And certainly he's doing it to Mariupol what he's done to Syria. Syria isn't the issue here. It's what he this man has been in charge for six years here. And what he's done since February the 24th is really the issue. The reason I mean, the Russians overplaying it in a sense that, yeah, he's in charge because all the forces, the reinforcements are coming into his district. So naturally he'd be in charge. Yeah. Uh, I, so I, I think we're making more out of it than what it is. And he is just like other Russian generals. He will he will execute the the Russian doctrine, which certainly uh, is to raise cities and destroy uh, innocent civilians on a horrific scale. They are all cut from the same cloth. You know, what bothers me when I hear the mainstream media talk about this, they say that it's the, the Russian military's disregard for civilian casualties. It's much more than that. There is a deliberate effort to, to go after civilians to create a sense of terror. I mean, it is the, 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 the blitzkrieg effect that, the Nazi, that Nazi Germany used. It's that they are not just disregarding civilian casualties. They're aiming for civilian casualties, aren't they? Yeah, this is no such thing as collateral damage or something yeah. like that, a fancy term to use uh, when you're trying to hit a military target and you kill civilians in doing that. I mean, the United States military and NATO countries take absolute pains to avoid civilian casualties. We actually, and I've seen it with my own eyes, we put our troops in harm's way to avoid civilian casualties. And that is a huge distinction from what we're seeing here. Here, the military objective that they're assigning to their forces 
or the destruction of civilian lives inside these cities. That is the military objective. There's no military target there of any value. The target is are the civilians. It's, it's, and that's what makes it a war crime. Well, it's, it's extraordinary because you have been mentioning it for years now that this is the way the Russians fight. I think a lot of people felt that because this was in the center of Europe, uh, that, that there would be everybody has a camera there. They didn't have the kind, they wouldn't have the kind of exposure uh, that, or they would have more exposure there than they did in Syria, so they, they wouldn't try it. But are you at all surprised that they're using precisely those same tactics that they use in Syria? No, no not, not whatsoever. And, mm. and remember, uh, Putin is the same person, you know, who used his FSB to blow up apartments in Moscow. And, and those apartments, they allege, were apartments blown up by Chechnyan rebels. Yeah. And that was his basis for going into Chechnya. And the reason why we know that is the third apartment that they were about to blow up, the FSB got caught at it. And they, so we know the kind of person that Putin and here he is right. blowing up innocent civilians living in apartment buildings to justify his use of military force against the Chechnyans. Yeah. That was that. That is how Putin began his reign as president of Russia back in 2000. All right. I, I just want to end on a, a positive. I'll, you, you mentioned the Boris Johnson walk with Zelensky, which which was extraordinary. A lot of people woke up on Saturday morning seeing that they couldn't believe what they were seeing. They thought it was it was some kind of uh, fancy camera work to get those two to look like they were together. But he was there. He walked the walk. I mean, first of all, it was it, it was a very brave gesture on 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 uh, Boris's part. But what did it mean to the Ukrainian people, and particularly the Ukrainian army, to see the prime minister of England walking the streets of Kyiv? Well, I'm sure they're playing that video wherever they can inside of Ukraine and social media and the like uh, to have that visitor, someone of his prominence. And he is uh, he has been like Roosevelt was to Churchill in in uh, in yeah. helping Britain be saved, you know, prior to the United States going into the war, where Churchill said uh, Roosevelt saved Britain. Boris Johnson is much like that. He's given tanks now uh, to, uh, to Zelensky. The United States aren't giving any tanks, uh, for sure. And there's other things that we could be giving that we're not giving. So I, I really appreciate what he has done here. And he, he's, and certainly, and it's a huge boost to Zelensky himself. Listen, Zelensky has to deal with his own fears, uh, threat to his life on a daily basis. He's hoping his family is in a safe place. Certainly they've got him in a secure place. And he's watching his citizens being killed by the thousands every day. You can imagine the emotional and psychological pressure that he feels. And here comes this leader who sort of parachutes in to the center of his city there, shakes his hand, pats him on the back, and, and just gives him uh, some inspiration, you know, to keep keep yeah. it up, keep going forward. You General, know, you're doing absolutely the right thing. I, I got to run, but I have to ask, should should President uh, Biden do the same? Should have been there a few weeks ago, as far as I'm concerned. United States is the global leader. We're first at providing support at first, also in providing our leadership. Yep. We shouldn't be uh, second best at this. If, I'm not even convinced the president will go. General Jack Keane, thank you very much, General. Great to see you. Appreciate you coming in.